Hey everybody, Brad Stevens here, founder and CEO of Outsource Access. We help companies redefine how they scale with offshore affordable staff from the Philippines. Congrats to all fellow winners of the 2023 Real Leaders Impact Awards. We are proud to be among you. About 10 years ago, I woke up to a major growth problem in my last business. Cash was tight, staff was overwhelmed, and tasks were not getting done. Then I discovered the world of offshore virtual staff in the Philippines where English is their second language, so there is no communication or culture gap. I realized outsourcing wasn't just call centers, it was access to college-educated Filipinos to support sales, marketing, operations, customer service, bookkeeping, personal tasks, and more. And in fact, the first woman I hired in the Philippines at 23 is now an award-winning COO of our entire company. It inspired me to launch Outsource Access. One client and YPO member, Ali Jamal, shared their offshore virtual staff Edison automated processes and saved them over 50,000 per year in the first few weeks. It's about finally getting things done and staff focusing on higher value activities. We've grown by over 2,000% in just three and a half years and will double next year. To receive a complimentary outsourcing playbook customized for your industry and to connect with one of our team here at Outsource Access, just visit RedefineScale.com. That's RedefineScale.com or text the word SCALE to 770-954-8440. Two months after hiring my first staff, she sent me a picture of shoes she bought for low-income children because of the opportunity. And now we support thousands of families and the environment with United Nations SDG projects. I'm proud we've grown with impact. To learn more, visit RedefineScale.com. Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. Looking forward to this episode, so we'll get this show on the road here. Here we go, folks, in five, four, three, two, and one, and welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast i'm your host kevin edwards and joining us today folks we have justin culla a partner at tcp group and the head of impact investing strategy justin my man thanks for being with us today i'm excited <laughs> i can i can tell you're excited justin it's not easy to get you excited but exactly. that, that means a lot to me today um, Justin, we, I've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. I know you, you're, you, you're big into this space. I know you're, you're an avid listener of the show and a fan of Real Leaders, of course. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about your backstory because I think it's really interesting to, to speak to someone in private equity who understands the impact markets. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this space. Yeah, um, I, I didn't get into impact by design. Um, uh, but uh, stories make a lot more sense looking back than, than looking forward. Um, I took a lot of good opportunities as they came, uh, but I was an engineer by training. I really liked computers and started the computer class in my high school with a couple other students and, and then found my, uh, my way into uh, building computer systems. And um, when I graduated from school, I um, I had a few different options. Silicon Valley had been uh, really eviscerated uh, due to the dot-com bust. And um, the big two hires at the time at, on campus were 
the federal government because we were engaging in a, a couple of uh, wars um, and um, Wall Street. And um, the former didn't sound very good to me. And so the, I, I decided to go to the latter, uh, move to New York. Um, and it was a pretty compelling pitch that 8% of the world's transactions went through our systems every day. There's no downtime. There's no latency. Um, and that, that sounded like a pretty interesting uh, technology uh, challenge. Um, doing that for a couple of years, I realized that that wasn't my life's passion. Um, but I, I started to get involved in the, in the technology world and started to think about uh, what I wanted to do when I grew up. And uh, I'm still not, not quite sure yet, but um, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting exercise. Um, that led me to uh, think about going back to business school um, to gain some more skills. I had developed a lot of technical skills, um, but wanted to uh, take on some other, other experiences. And so I went to business school at MIT, and I went to uh, school of government at Harvard um, to broaden my thinking. And I really went to MIT. Uh, because of something that the the president at the time, Susan Hockfield, said, which is that she wanted MIT to be the place where little kids dream of making the world a better place with technology. And I thought that was really interesting, um, and I believed her. And so I joined um, the MIT class in 2006, um, and the Harvard Kennedy School is really philosophically aligned. Obviously, they approached it from a very different perspective, that government might have a uh, a view on solving a global problem, but both philosophically had this view that you could take your career and apply it to make the world a better place. And I spent a few years sort of thinking about how to do that. And what really compelled me was uh, becoming an investor, touching lots of different companies and technologies that were potentially transformative. And it was really hard to move into venture capital, uh, but I found my way uh, into, into the field. And my first job, uh, I remember sitting in a pitch, and it was a company that said, there is no ad network for the ultra-rich uh, people who want to buy uh, Rolexes and Ferraris. And it was the first time in my professional career that I just switched off. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in what we were talking about. Um, I'm usually all in. Um, and approaching things with a full heart. And I just, I frankly, couldn't care less about what they were talking about. And the next day, I read in the Wall Street Journal that the former CEO, Kaplan, was starting an education-focused investing firm. And I didn't know that was a thing. Um, but that sounded pretty amazing to me. And I cold-called and emailed him uh, about a dozen times. And I, I got the job and joined as a founding member at a firm called Weld North. And we were uh, capital backed by KKR, the big private equity firm, investing in education technology. And in 2009, that was not really a cool thing to do. Now it's obviously evolved a lot since. Um, but it, it was really an amazing time to, be, to invest in education technology. There was a lot changing in the environment. Uh, schools hadn't had uh, uh, a lot of bandwidth uh, into, uh, into their facilities that students didn't have their own computers, uh, that technology was still um, uh, very uh, flat on, on the internet. Uh, and of course, the iPad uh, hadn't even come out yet. And so all that was about to change. And we started to invest in companies that were transforming K-12 and higher ed. And um, that was the first 
you know, real application of the training that I had had at MIT and Harvard that you can apply business practices to things that do a good thing in the world. Um, and, uh, and, and you really got to feel that in our management discussions, what are the outcomes that children are having? What are the outcomes that teachers are having? What is the relationship that parents are having because of our products, because of technology? Um, and it's really hard to build uh, products uh, in education. So we spent a lot of time really investing in curriculum, investing in technology, both of those things needed to come together. And then also building out infrastructure in our companies so that they could really scale. And um, this unleashed a lot of innovation uh, in the industry, um, including our, our, uh, our portfolio company, Imagine Learning, which is one of the largest K-12 education uh, technology companies in the world today. Um, in 2015, I left because I had an itch to start a company myself. And I started a company called Business Blocks, which was an education company for working adults and small businesses. And I really believe that people like my parents should have access to high quality, low cost, successful education. Not everyone was going to go to business school. And most entrepreneurs, um, they don't get trained to do that. They're, they know their industry really well. They know how to cut hair or make their pizza sauce. Uh, they know how to be a lawyer. Um, but no one's ever trained them on, on business. And so they jump in two feet first and figure it out. And it's really hard. And so we created business blocks to create education because the thing that makes their business special, what makes their pizza sauce good, is the art. But there's a science to it, too. You don't have to guess what your gross margin needs to be. We also wanted to make it not sound uh, in a, uh, academic. Um, you know, people are entrepreneurs, they want things that are practical and real world. And so we created education that was designed for everybody. You could go to, uh, we had doctors, lawyers on our platform. We had people who hadn't graduated high school or for whom English wasn't their first language. And so we tailored our education that was accessible to everybody and low cost. Uh, we got uh, thousands of uh, entrepreneurs and business owners on our platform um, and eventually sold the, the business to the third largest commercial, uh, small business commercial insurer in the country. Um, I, I stayed there for a couple of years um, uh, uh, in a variety of roles and then left to join PCP Group, where I am today, uh, to uh, lead one of the first lower bid market uh, impact investment fund strategies in the U.S. Now, that seems like a, a variety of different experiences, but actually there's a through line. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do in starting the impact investing uh, fund at PCP Group was take what I what had been successful with Weld North, but put it in the context of impact. Impact investing wasn't a concept when we started Weld North, and so we knew why we were doing the work. It was to help children uh, with educational outcomes, help teachers and parents, um, but we never bothered to measure those outcomes specifically, and. Um, with the influx of impact capital coming coming in that really hadn't been applied in the lower mid market. So I wanted to take what I knew and apply it in that market. And that's what has started the TDP impact investing fund strategy. Love it. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, and, and a really important kind of uh, preface to understand your experience for me. And then also the, I think the end goal I'd like to get to today, Justin, if we could have a conversation on this is what is impact at the end of the day? What is it? So it's changed throughout my experience. 
And, and to me, it's, uh, it started with, oh, simply it's just transforming lives. It's businesses that transform lives. You can use your business as a force for good. But I realized there's that this whole spectrum of impact. And also, if you think about it like this, like almost like in, impact linguistics, it's linguistic relativity. The more you understand, the more terminology you know, the more labels you can start to kind of apply things and not really box it in just this one big thing called like a social enterprise, right? So I think from your experience, what's interesting to me to first go into is the energy and unlocks for you as an individual, as an employee for recruitment. You hounded that person with 12 emails because that was a passion that gets you in the flow, which unlocks a lot of innovation in a lot of companies. Let's talk about impact as a strategy first. When you're working with these companies, what are some of the things you want to make sure they do to increase the the productivity and the employee uh, recruitment? Yeah. So um, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. I mean, maybe the place to start is to define impact because that, that really anchors conversations. And so sure. um, impact is not a defined term in business and lots of groups and people will define it in different ways. And um, we've taken great care to define it specifically for us. Uh, the first thing to know is that oftentimes impact and ESG are, um, are um, confused uh, together. And we, we have... Um, delineated them um, uh, at our firm. And so ESG is a toolkit for all businesses to de-risk and unlock value in the medium and long term, take into account all the stakeholders that affect the business, management, employees, partners, suppliers, customers, communities, the environment, investors. And so every business has risks related to those stakeholders. Every business has strengths related to the stakeholders. And every business has areas to unlock value. And it's possible that you have strengths in one area and risks in another. You can, uh, you can, tr you can not uh, treat your customers very well, but treat your employees very well. And there are companies, uh, as an example, who do that. Um, it's a really, it's a, a risk framework um, to um, make sure that you are managing a business well in the medium and long term, and as a way to differentiate yourself. But it applies to all businesses. Impact is different. Impact is where your product and service is aligned to a uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goal and with measurable outcomes attached. And so very simply, um, ESG is how businesses act and impact is what they give to the world. And so every business should, treat, should attempt to treat their employees well and their customers well and the environment well. And those are good habits. Impact is about taking your product and finding a market to address a, a pressing global problem. And so the United Nations has, has uh, defined 17 problem areas in the world. Um, one is related to food, one is related to gender, one is related to education, one is related to water and land. Um, some of them are not uh, necessarily applicable to business uh, concepts, but many are. Um, but these are, these are problems in the world. And we seek to find companies that have products or, or services that address those problems. And so that's how we define impact. And so to answer your specific question, um, why would somebody work at our company? Why would somebody take our investment capital? The people who are compelled to do that um, are seeking to um, uh, invest in their career, uh, take investment dollars, 
uh, because they want to find capital that is aligned to their personal goals, how they see the world. And so if you think the best use of your time is to invest in, to work on problems related to education or health and wellness or food insecurity, uh, then you might be in, in, in a company or in a, in a field that is focused on um, coming up with impact solutions. Um, the second part of that is not only addressing the problem, but having measurable outcomes attached. Because it's not enough to say that we're operating in that universe. You want to be able to count measure so you know if you're doing a good job actually accomplishing your goals. And so just like we hold our companies to financial and business metrics, we want to hold our companies to impact metrics as well. And so every company will define their impact metrics differently. Sometimes it might be graduation rate. Sometimes it might be about employment or it might be about uh, food insecurity. Um, but you want to find the right metric that uh, animates your employees, your partners, your suppliers, uh, and your capital. And so that, that's, that's how we think about impact really as a, as, as a tool um, to attract talent, to attract partners and, and, and capital. I like how you uh, delineated the two, right? For me, I'd agree. I'd say, you know, ESG, it's a risk lens. For impact, uh, it's providing something that otherwise may not be there in the first place. Um, and it, it, I've never heard it be tied to the UN SDGs, but that obviously makes quite a lot of sense. Now, from a fund pers perspective, it could be both, right? Maybe you're investing into these impact companies to broaden your ESG portfolio. Help me understand from the investor's perspective how you are looking at impact companies and where you see the value. Yeah, well, um, what's interesting is that some companies will self-describe as impact. They, they, they started the company to do something fundamentally impactful. We want to provide access to English language learners who are in K through two. And they start the business from day zero intending to have those kind of outcomes. There are other companies who have never heard of impact. They haven't heard of ESG. They do a particular thing. Um, uh, but when they're educated on what impact is, it really unlocks a set of tools, capabilities, community um, that can power their business. And so um, for, um, for us, um, we can find companies that understand the impact universe um, but we also find companies that don't and those are companies that we call impact potential and in some ways that is a really good use of private equity capital which is unlocking value that didn't exist in the world um, uh, i'll give you an example you know we invested in a company called american thrift stores it's a set of thrift stores based in the southeast it's like a a, a big box in a, in a on a strip mall um, lots of product, well lit, uh, looks like a, a department store that you'd be familiar with. Uh, their model is they have about 3,000 donation bins uh, around the Southeast. Uh, they partner with a local nonprofit, the largest of which is Make-A-Wish Foundation, Alabama. Uh, we pay them on a per pound basis, and we sent over seven figure uh, to our nonprofit partners uh, last year um, and funded fully half of all the wishes in all of Alabama last year. Um, we take the product that's donated, and we, uh, we sort it, 
uh, we uh, clean it, we uh, merchandise it, we price it at an average price point of $4.25 to an average customer at or below poverty. And in doing that, we save 55 million pounds of trash and landfill. And we brought in Naveen's impact fund as a co-investor uh, because we were both very excited about um, the idea that uh, to invest in a circular economy company. We all know that we buy too much stuff, that stuff has good use, and people should be able to access that rather than have it live in landfill, uh, access it and, and utilize it in their life. Um, when we think about um, uh, the impact story, um, it is a very clear story. The more bins we launch, um, the more stuff we save from trash. And this is really the way the world should work. It's not the only uh, part of solving our environmental problems, but it has to be a part of it because it takes a lot of energy to dig up raw material, forge it, package it, ship it, sell it, use it once and throw it in the garbage. It's also non-controversial. Nobody wants to live down with wind from a landfill. And so in every part of the country, everybody wants to, to um, uh, live in a, a community that has less trash and garbage. And that stuff can find its way to people who need it at affordable, at, at affordable rates. And so when we think about um, uh, impact, uh, impact potential there, the average customer who goes into American thrift store is over 55, which is, which is fine. And, and they're uh, very engaged customers. But we wanted to find another uh, pocket of customers and uh, a younger pocket, pocket of customers, um, especially, especially millennial and Gen Z. Now, the things that animate them are different. Um, and even in the Southeast, um, oftentimes the thing that makes them motivated is um, uh, doing well with their, with their wallet. Uh, and, and the kind of messaging that is attracted to them, environmental messaging, green messaging, uh, is uh, it can be compelling. And so we find that to access a new uh, uh, customer um, segment, we have different channels like Instagram and TikTok um, that communicate to those kind of customers in entirely different ways. And we think about our impact toolkit as a way to reach new customers that we wouldn't have otherwise reached without having this impact lens. Um, when we think about the kind of partners we have, many companies have had made um, environmental commitments, like net zero commitments, and really don't know how to achieve that. And so they're looking for solutions. And so when we go to them and say, hey, can we put a donation bin on your property um, and help clean up the local community? Um, that allows them to help achieve their goal and it becomes this win-win. And so the impact toolkit really becomes a, a powerful uh, motivator for new nonprofit partners, for new uh, real estate partners, for new customers, and certainly for employees who feel very proud about the work that they're doing in their local community. So, Justin, I'd like you to, to take that example and then now apply it to your framework of the SDGs. Did your founders, I mean, the SDGs were probably created after this company was created, right? Um, so yeah. how, how, does, how do you use the framework to then, um, I guess, address um, to, to maybe the founder or the companies why this is an impact company? Well, you know, the, 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 the founder is um, uh, long enough been involved with the business. Business has been around for uh, 40 or 50 years. Um, but the business was not necessarily familiar with impact and ESG um, uh, concepts before uh, we became an investor. But it really was consistent with how they operated in their philosophy. Um, but it was a new toolkit. 
And so the SDGs are um, best applied in a simple way. And so if you can't find an SDG that easily applies to the business model, well, you may not have an impact, uh, an, uh, an impact um, um, company um, from our perspective. And so this company aligns with SDG 12.5, which is removing trash from landfill um, because there's too much trash in the world and, and we can't and we can't have trash uh, uh, trash uh, uh, areas grow um, uh, exponentially over time. And so this company addresses that. And if we can scale this model to from dozens to hundreds to thousands of stores, then we will take the products that have already been created in the world and find second use for them. And this has to be part of our um, uh, our economic system at scale. And so when we when we talked with management about that that vision, it really was consistent with their goal, even though the specific buzzwords and acronyms and SDGs weren't familiar to, to the company, but we are managing to them now. Interesting. So I can almost do this with, I mean, many companies, couldn't I? I mean, a lot of companies that may not know they have, you know, an impact or an SDG goal tied to that. And, and here's the example I'd like to give because it's really important we flush this out. Like, like, what about a dentist office, Justin? The simple case of a dentist office. If I'm a dentistry or a dentist franchise all around the country, I'm improving lives, right? Lots of diseases start in the mouth. Would you consider that an impact company? And is what I'm hearing is, would you go to that company and say, hey, SDG number two is good health or three, good health and well-being. If we can apply to these goals, we can unlock a lot of innovation, recruitment opportunities, and really tell that story throughout the company to increase profitability. Is that kind of where, where, the, where the focus is? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, the, um, the way we define impact is um, uh, a product or service aligned to a United Nations Sustainable Development Goal with measurable outcomes at scale. And so that last part, at scale is really operative because you can do a really you can do really good stuff um, as a business, um, but what we're looking for from impact capital is scalable models that can address pressing global problems. Now, there's another part to understand impact. So, how do you know if you're, you're having those measurable outcomes that are worth achieving? So, there's three three important dimensions to that: intentionality, additionality and non-negative externalities at scale. So what does that mean? Okay. Intentionality is you intend to have to, to have the good thing happen. And so there may be lots of businesses that are doing things similar, but if they don't intend to do it, they may not be an impact company. It's a byproduct, it's, it's, it's a nice thing, but that's not the purpose. Impact companies' purpose as an organization is to achieve that kind of outcome. The second is additionality which is when we apply capital, we can scale that outcome. We can have more of that good outcome happen. So we can launch many more stores, many more dentist offices, uh, et cetera. Um, and the third is non-negative externalities at scale, which is you wanna make sure that at scale, you're actually not having unintended consequences um, that actually can create harm. And there are examples of that out there. And so you wanna make sure that that doesn't happen because that can, be in spite of all the good stuff that you're looking to happen. Now, intentionality has to apply to an underserved, marginalized, discriminated, disadvantaged groups. 
And so you can define that in lots of different ways. We've, we have 11 different groups out there. Um, but um, there, are, um, there are lots of groups that um, have a need for that solution. So it may be that um, uh, a set of dental practices is a great thing to do. And, um, and they, they are important in their local community. They have a great service. Um, but it really isn't serving an underserved group. Well, that may, not, may, may or may not be an impact company. You have to really understand what they're actually doing. But um, the, that nuance can matter. Um, if that dental practice is uh, serving a group that hadn't had um, uh, uh, dentistry services offered in the local community, that could be transformative. Because one of the things, just to use your example, one of the things that uh, many people don't know is that um, dental health can lead to overall um, health and well, well-being. Um, and so simple dentistry can actually extend, extend people's lives, um, both the quantity and quality, um, dramatically. And so um, using a little bit of fluoride, having a little bit of dental care can actually dramatically have an effect on your life. So if you're approaching a community that didn't have access to that, that was underserved, well, that may well be an impact uh, company at scale. Agreed. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail around the head. And, and the, the part I want to go to next is kind of like, where, where are we on this continuum uh, of, of capitalism? Uh, because if, if it's about kind of providing something to a population that might be underserved, um, what does that look like in the 1700s? What does that look like in the 1800s? What does that look like in 2100? Right. And so to you right now, Justin, what do you think is happening in terms of just capitalism as a whole? How do you see it evolving? Because I guess the question would be in 100 years, do you see this as just normal business? I, I do see this as normal business. Um, the, I see it as normal business now. We, we're putting a, a term on it because um, there are pools of capital who want their money only to be deployed in these areas. But this is normal business. It's not different than any other business. It's seeking to sell a product or service um, to, to a market. Um, now it has particular focuses on this. And so I think one, one of the things that's um, most interesting about impact is that people think that this is special or niche or it's a fad or a moment in time. Unfortunately, the world has a lot of problems and some of those problems will be addressed by government some of those problems will be addressed by nonprofits but most of those problems will be addressed by private companies and because of that the most no, the the most of the solutions that will occur will happen in the private market context but the problems will change and so the problems of today will be different to your point, in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, you know, they will it will continue to evolve, and it um, it is pretty uncontroversial to say that we will never solve all our problems. They'll just be different kinds of problems, and so the application of money to addressing problems that people need fixing is a good idea, and so this is not something that will be a fad. It will change. Um, but it will certainly not go away. And, and, and this is true in every domain. So just take a couple of like really interesting examples of business over time. So one of the 
um, uh, uh, one of the inventions um, uh, that unlocked the middle class in the 1950s was the ability to um, create packaged food. Um, and um, the, that was a catalyst for um, uh, suburbanization for, for the middle class. And you could make cheap food uh, for the first time. Um, you could package it, it had a long shelf life. You could um, transport food from one place to another without it rotting. And this was transformative. Now we know in today's context that a lot of packaged food can be actually have an adverse effect on human health. And so the thing that propelled the middle class in the 1950s is having negative health effects for people today. And so what's happening now? We're having other movements in the food industry um, that are um, focused on solving a different problem. Um, we have the same dynamic with energy, the kind of things that were important for energy in the uh, 20th century are changing now. The kind of ways that we interact with raw materials um, is changing now. And so the um, dynamics of how we educate um, the invention of industrial education, what we know is K through 12 in college that emerged um, about 200 years ago was, uh, was a very productive system for mass education. And now we know, and especially with technology, that we need personalization. Uh, and so how do we take that model and refine it? And so we know that the problems will continue to, uh, to uh, grow. Uh, we know that the problems will continue to change, but that creates market-based opportunities. And so the amount of money coming in is gonna be entirely rational. It may or may not be attached to uh, a motive to do good in the earth. It at very least will have a motive of saying, we think that this is a great business opportunity because there's a lot of people who will need this thing. Uh, and, um, and at very best, it's a lot of people who say, this is the best place of, for my capital because it's entirely obvious to me that the world is broken in a certain way and I'm going to fix it. I couldn't agree more. And I thought you were, where you were going with that was actually 1950s with healthcare uh, incentives for businesses. What a great opportunity, although it's going to be more for, for, for me to spend on my employees. It's a great employment opportunity for recruitment uh, and also just a culture of people that feel safe, secure, things such as that. Did you have something to add on that? No, look, it, that, that's another really great example. I mean, the the um, the um, the reason why uh, businesses started to provide healthcare benefits was a way to uh, manage the tax system um, in an efficient way, and that emerged in the fifties and sixties, and then became part of the capitalist ecosystem that was really hard to unwind. But now, especially in a lower rate unemployment environment, where it's super competitive for employees, how do you differentiate yourself? What kind of benefits are you going to offer? And so the reason why those benefits started um, is different than the reason why companies are doing that today. Um, and it's certainly more advanced now. Um, but that's a, that's a great example of the the changing nature of business. But if you want to hire somebody and they have two options and one company offers great benefits uh, and one company doesn't, 
Well, you might go with a company that offers great benefits. And there's lots of impact-focused companies that are focused on offering those benefits to groups who would not otherwise be able to afford those benefits or have access to them. And that's created a great business proposition for them. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I think entrepreneurs are the solution. I mean, we need to to these world problems, to these existential problems that we face today, there needs to be market-driven solutions. Entrepreneurs that have that intention to solve that problem, wrap a business model around it. And as they grow, as they scale, they solve more problems. And that's just transforming lives and culture at the end of the day. I think at the end of the day, also capitalism is amoral, right? It's, you know, it's just what is what it is. And I think it's up to us to promote the common good. Justin, where we get in the way, though, is no doubt. It's greed. It's just human beings, man. We're greedy people. We're greedy creatures sometimes. What what can we do? And, and what are you seeing from a leadership lens that we can do to restrict the the um, the desire to always maximize, always achieve more when it might be at the cost of leaving someone behind? Well, I think it's all about your time horizon. Uh, if you have a really long time horizon, you are not going to maximize uh, uh, value in the short term um, if it is at the expense of the long term because people figure that out. And so if you are maximizing uh, but taking something away from your employees or your customers, over the long time, you're going to have less of one of those groups. And so the companies who have a long-term view on business are the ones that are going to succeed uh, more over the long term. And so it really is about having that long arc approach. Um, you know, companies that are looking to do important things, uh, it is hard to uh, do important things in a short period of time. And new problems will emerge. And so um, the, it is not a problem to, to make a profit. You can reinvest that profit and uh, create new ideas, new solutions, you can invest in your business and new technologies and more people. Uh, the, um, if you do that right, you're going to have a, a really great business. And so I really think it's about understanding your time horizon more than anything else. I couldn't, I keep on saying, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's just like, I'm always agreeing. My question to you is this, maybe I'll challenge you with this one, Justin. You know, a few people I'd say in the impact space, now this is just what I've heard and observed. You know, they see private equity as this monster, as this, oh, you know, I've taken all this time to grow my business. Why should I sell to someone who doesn't know about me, who doesn't care about what I want to do um, and is just trying to maximize profitability to then you know go public and then the culture's lost and if you were to remove the impact it would cease to exist in my business how would you answer that well i would suggest that person not sell to an investor who would treat them like that um uh and they have no uh obligation to 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 uh sell their uh, part or all of their company to any investor at all um the best use of raising capital is because you think that investor will help you grow your business and achieve your goal. Um, and um, sometimes that means um, taking a financial reward um, for the work you've done. Sometimes it means taking capital and put it in investing in your business. But if you're not compatible with your investor, I think that you shouldn't take that, that capital for, uh, for sure. 
Now, what does private equity mean? Private equity means capital that's invested in private companies. And there's different uses of private equity. Most people think about large bold bracket private equity. That actually looks uh, a little different in form than the kind of uh, private equity capital that we invest in businesses. We typically invest in founder-run or led businesses. Um, we invest in businesses where the management, the management team owns a material stake in their own business, where they're looking for a partner because going from zero to one is really hard, but going from one to two is differently hard. So I say that we invest in teenage-like businesses, companies that have figured out some stuff, but not all stuff. And so all of our businesses need help with people and technology operations, um, certainly with uh, financial capabilities. And they're all run very thinly, which means that the only way to really create value is to grow. And growing is hard. So you want to take capital from an investor who has seen a lot of uh, examples of good growth. They've made mistakes. You can learn from that. You don't have to learn on your own dime. They have benefits of scale. You can talk to their other portfolio CEOs and work with them. They have operational capabilities like operating partners like we have uh, who can help work with your business. Um, but the best use of venture capital or private equity capital is to not only take money, uh, but also to take uh, capability, access, resources, and community. And so um, what I'd suggest uh, openly to uh, founders and management teams is um, just like we do diligence on our companies, they should do due diligence on their investors. Um, ask the other portfolio companies in there um, who they've invested in, what, what has it been like working with them? How they work through tough challenges? How they help them through budgeting or with growth or with working capital? How they help them with, um, with, uh, um, uh, the, uh, with um, new incumbents? How they um, uh, how they help them think about big investments like in capex or in technology, and those are those are tricky conversations. And so, um, the best investors are the ones who help companies go through that. Now, um, there's lots of examples of uh, companies who have taken on capital and become. Um, the most important companies in their respective industries. Um, many of the largest um, companies out there today have taken on investment capital. Um, and they did that because that capital was helpful and the capability to attach to that capital was also helpful. And so whether it's Apple or Google or Amazon or companies in health or food or in energy or in electric vehicles, Many of them have taken on capital because it was in their interest to do that, um, but not all. And 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 some companies have managed to grow without cap without outside capital. Um, but I would say that it's a partnership, and you really want to make sure that your partner is philosophically aligned, is culturally aligned, can help you bring um, with uh, address the kind of challenges that you're experiencing now and and you will in the future, um, and has the capital resources to help you out. So I, I think that it's not a tool for every company, but it certainly can be an important tool um, for, for many companies. And there are lots of examples of companies been uh, having been transformed because they've raised money. Interesting. And Justin, you mentioned that you only invest in like founder-led companies. 
Um, tell me a little bit more about what you're looking for in a leader. What are some of those characteristics that you want to make sure they check the boxes on before you even consider talking about a partnership? Yeah, well, um, we are, uh, we certainly are looking to invest in, um, in founders, management teams, um, who are, who are led by leaders. Uh, uh, that can mean a lot of different things. Um, typically I mean, I think that, uh, a leader is somebody who, um, balances two competing priorities. One is knowing how to do, uh, 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 work through the tough challenges, um, in a committed way. Um, and the tough challenges can be really tough. Um, uh, and having a view and steering the ship. The second is somebody who is a learning machine and is willing to, um, be committed to their own vision, but is constantly informing that vision by taking on new perspectives. And so a really, a, a good listener is pointing the ship in a direction in a fearless way, uh, even despite um, challenges and headwinds. Um, but they're doing that in an informed way. And, uh, and they're listening to their people, they're listening to the market, and they're uh, being responsive. And so it is a tricky balance to, to be committed uh, to a direction, but also to be responsive enough to say, we need to make a change. Um, and those, those, are, those can be very hard things to do, but a leader will do the hard things. And I think that's the best definition of a leader. Someone who's willing to do the hard things. Someone who's willing to do the hard things. All right, well, I'm gonna make you repeat that just one more time in efforts to, to bring this show all together, Justin Cullah. In your words, what is your definition of a real leader? Well, well I, I think, you know, somebody who is, um, uh, who knows, who, who is so committed to the destination that they're willing to do the hard things to get there. Um, now people can be leaders in their own lives. Um, oftentimes the things that make people the most proud are the things that are the hardest for them to achieve. The things that were the easiest, um, things that were granted to them often don't feel like they have a lot of value. Um, and I know that's true for my kids and I know that's true for myself. Um, and I think that's true for businesses too. Um, that the hard won uh, victories are often the most satisfying. Uh, and, um, but you have to be committed to doing that. And so um, sometimes you'll take easy revenue, even if you know that it's not gonna be permanent revenue. Sometimes you're willing to, to um, not make a change because that change is expensive or risky or it can rock the boat. But a leader will um, have a view of where things are going and be willing to, to take the company, the people uh, along with it um, and keep that ship steady. And that, that's hard to do. Uh, and so having that vision that is animating, is inspiring, um, and being committed, but also being willing to listen, that, that, um, makes it, um, uh, uh, easier for people to follow. Um, and, a, a real leader will, um, uh, show where they're going 
and um, and that vision will be so compelling that people will want to follow. And that's what and that's what we find. Well put. Well, Justin, well said. Appreciate you coming on the Religious Podcast today. Time just flew by for me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know. <laughs> that means it was a good one today. For Justin Cullen, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, keep the ship steady, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Hey, Releaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to Releaders.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses, and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.